So hey everybody, welcome to ARE Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles. And during the webinar today, we welcome Mr. Mike Newman back to review a construction and evaluation mock exam with us. We're gonna go through several questions to better your understanding of a variety of CE concepts like bidding and negotiating, uh, support of the construction process and evaluation of completed projects. Um, a quick mention about NCARB and Prometric. It's January 21st, 2021. The ARE is online now. Uh, you can now test online. You can also do it in person. Uh, and there have been some updates to the exam, but uh, as we like to, to share, the content is staying the same. Uh, so it's been you know, structured a little bit differently. I think there's fewer questions. It's a little bit shorter, but the content's the same. Uh, NCARB has also uh, explained that, that the cut scores for those who have tested between uh, now and December 14th will be released in February. And what that means is whenever they release a new exam, um, they have to, they basically need to get enough test results in order to figure out what passing means. That's what a cut score means. That's the sort of the, the level of, of passing. They don't sort of define that arbitrarily. They actually take a bunch of, in fact, I think it's around 300 or plus um, test results. And then they sort of try to figure out what passing means. So um, uh, the cut scores are going to be released in February, which just means between now and February, those of you who are taking the test, you know, there's going to be a delay in getting your test results. But after that time in February, uh, when they release the cut scores, then it'll go back to normal. So we shared a link in the chat for you to visit NCARB's website for all the details if you'd like to dig into that a little bit more. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, Black Spectacles is the first ever NCARB approved test prep provider for all six of the ARE divisions. We offer comprehensive test prep for the ARE with video lectures, practice exams, flashcards, and virtual workshops, all available online. And with memberships available either for individual architects or firms or AI chapters or schools. So lots of different options. At our next ARE Live broadcast on February 25th, we will run through an exercise from one of our virtual workshops with Mark Bailey. Uh, he'll go through PPD's selecting rated assemblies based on building type, site, and life safety exercise. What the hell? Uh, that sounds like an interesting topic. Um, this is a great opportunity, uh, you know, to see how hands-on and in-depth the virtual workshops are. Uh, so definitely don't miss it. Uh, it should be a really good one. As you guys know, there's a ton of stuff um, in PPD. Um, and so this will give you a really good taste of what the workshops are like. And, you know, the, this will actually be one of the actual exercises. So uh, you'll get the value out of that. Today, like we've been doing recently, we're going to be engaging exclusively on our online ARE community. So head over to that thread uh, if you haven't already. I think we're going to share the link here in GoToWebinar, or you can just go to community.blackspectacles.com. And if you go to the homepage, which I'm doing right now, if you click the giant little box that says ARE Live, and the first thing that's at the top, it says ARE Live Construction and Evaluation Mock Exam 21. Uh, so you can go there to engage, uh, ask any questions and so forth. Uh, everyone who posts on our thread today will be eligible to win a free t-shirt, uh, Black Spectacles t-shirt. So, you know, at a minimum, just head over to, to that website and just say hi. Uh, you don't have to say, you don't have to say anything intelligent. You can just say hi. Um, and then you'll be immediately uh, entered to win. And don't forget to stay tuned until the end of the uh, podcast to see if you won. Um, and today, as we often do, uh, we have a special discount on Black Spectacles individual memberships to share uh, and help you along in your journey. So we'll provide that coupon at the end of the show. So stick around for that.
If you don't know our guest, uh, he's Mr. Mike Newman. He's a senior lecturer at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, as well as a founder of Shed Studio. And he's the instructor for Black Spectacles online airy exam prep lectures. If you don't know Mike and you're working on taking the test, you're going to know Mike. <laughs> um, so uh, I'd like to welcome you, Mr. Newman, uh, and thanks for joining us today. You bet. And for, for better or for worse, you'll get to know me. There you go. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and uh, just sort of a quick uh, little regarding all of the end card stuff that you were just going through. Uh, it's it's a good idea, definitely to to uh, keep up with and follow all of the changes that are going on at end card, so you feel comfortable and know what's what's going on. But I also wouldn't overly fret about it. Um, you know, the fact that they're updating their cut scores, it's interesting. But it's it's you know the fact that it's going to come a week later than it might have otherwise really doesn't matter to your uh, process and to getting to yeah. know this stuff. So you want to feel comfortable, but you don't want to get overly worked up over any of that stuff. Um, That's great advice. It Mike. is pretty interesting, Mark. You and I have talked about this a little bit. It's interesting that they've found a way to do uh, online versions of this. I think that's great. But you know, yeah. it's not perfect for everybody. Um, it's a little funny. You have to kind of give over access to your computer and do a bunch of other stuff. Um, so you know, if it works for you, great. But otherwise, you know, pretty soon you'll be able to do it. Or even now, in some places, you'll be able to do it in person. Um, so again, it's good to follow those things, but don't get overly worked up about them. Uh, would you agree, Mark? I bet you would. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Um... Uh, let's see if there's anything, see if I can say anything smart there. I don't think I have anything smart to say, so I'll just yeah, shut up. Much it, right? Okay, there we go. Let's dive <laughs> in. Uh, okay, so uh, we're talking about uh, construction and evaluation, as Mark said. Um, this is sort of in that sequence of things where, you know, uh, the, the flow of the process of a, of a construction project is, uh, you know, at first you're doing the early research and early design, and that all goes into one exam, and then you're kind of pulling together your ideas and kind of how things are going to be related to each other, what kinds of materials you're going to use, and kind of follow-up research to what makes the most sense for that location. That's going to be in that uh, second one. And then the third one is like, how do we make that uh, all kind of fit together? Uh, how do we put together a communication system so that we can hand it to contractors and, and all of that? Uh, and that's the third one. Well, this is the fourth one. So this is after all of that is done. And what you're really thinking about here is everything from the kind of moment where you're kind of putting the package together uh, for bids uh, to go out to multiple bidders uh, if you're doing a design bid build. Um, so the whole kind of bid package questions and then the reviews of the bids and the kind of getting into uh, helping the owners choose a contractor and then kind of moving from there into uh, all the roles that the architect plays during the construction time. Uh, and then eventually you get to a spot where you've uh, finished, uh, the contractors have finished the construction and there's all the sort of closeout stuff that has to happen with payouts and uh, uh, warranties and commissioning and all of those things that happen at the end uh, of a project until you finally, finally, finally are actually done. Uh, and so this is sort of reviewing uh, all the, the various roles. This exam is sort of reviewing and, and kind of dealing with the various roles that the architect plays through that part of the process, which is more than you might think. There's actually quite a lot of role uh, for the architect to do, quite, quite a lot of things for the architect to do, uh, even though the ball is really in the contractor's court and it's really time for them to build 
uh, the thing that you've designed, but they need your help. And there's a bunch of contractual obligations and just sort of good you know, uh, best practices about how you should uh, kind of move forward with that as a process. So uh, kind of placing us there, let's uh, dive into some questions. Uh, here's the first one, uh, number one, in reviewing the bids, the architect A, chooses the bids that are a combination of the lowest cost with the most reliable contractor, B, reviews and advises uh, the owner, uh, C, must choose the lowest cost bid, D, has no role, only the owner sees the bids. Well, it's definitely not uh, D, although it could be, um, the owner can decide to do the bidding process however they want to do it. They're the owner. Um, they can do a stupid thing. They can do smart things. It's like whatever they want to some to some degree. Uh, and so if the owner says, I don't really want your help in this, then, you're, then they can look at the bids without you. But typically in what's expected in the contracts, especially if you're talking about the AIA uh, family of contracts, which would be the default uh, contracts to be thinking about unless you are specifically told otherwise on the exam, uh, the expectation is that your role would be B, to review and advise the owner. Um, so you're reviewing the bids, you're helping the bids be organized, um, you're maybe doing some research on the various different bidders, and then you're presenting that information to the owner, and the owner is then making any final choice. Um, and like I said, in most situations, the owner can do whatever the heck they want to do. Uh, they can choose the lowest bid or not choose the lowest bid. They can choose uh, somebody that you recommend, or they can decide to ignore you. There's lots of different ways that they may go for lots of different reasons. There are specific situations where uh, owners are required to choose the lowest bid. Um, there are some private company situations where that's the case, but usually that's a governmental project um, where uh, in order to stop a situation where they say, uh, uh, a project in a town and the mayor receives uh, four bids, three of them are for uh, $10 million and one of them is for $20 million and it turns out that that one is their brother-in-law and they choose the $20 million one. Uh, you know, it's sort of an easy way to have corruption in certain situations and so often in uh, governmental projects, uh, you'll see that the lowest bid is required. But even in those situations, there's often a way around that um, because sometimes you just don't want to choose the lowest bid. Uh, you may be nervous that the lowest bid is not, uh, that they, they maybe missed something and there's going to be some problem down the road or uh, maybe they're a low bid but their uh, references are really bad uh, and so you just don't want to get into a problem. And So lowest bid is not always chosen and even in situations where it's uh, sort of technically required to be chosen, there may be other ways around that through third-party reviews and things like that. So uh, it's, except for governmental process, it's very rare that you must choose the lowest bid, but not surprisingly, uh, you often will choose the lowest bid just because it's the lowest bid and, you know, who wants to pay more money if they don't uh, have to pay more? Uh, so typically your role as an architect is to go through and do essentially what A says, it's just that it's not your role to choose, it's your role to help the owner choose. And that is usually a combination of 
lower cost with reliable references and things like that. But remember, there can be many other reasons that an owner may choose a specific bidder. Uh, it may be uh, a requirement or even just a desire on the owner's part to maybe choose a minority-owned business or a woman-owned business or uh, you know, maybe you're doing work in a particular place and you really want to support local uh, contractors. And so maybe you want to uh, choose a local contractor instead of somebody who's coming in from outside of town or something. There's lots of perfectly reasonable reasons uh, why an owner may vary off of the sort of obvious things of high reliability and low cost. Um, but in general, your role is to advise uh, the owner and it's their job to uh, pick and choose. One other kind of quick thing to say about that is one of the roles of the architect is, uh, you'll hear the word agency, that the uh, architect is an agent of the owner, which means that there are many topics on which the architect can, in a typical contract, not in every contract, but in a typical contract, there are many roles where the architect can speak for the owner. Um, and that's what it means to be an agent of the owner is that you are you are uh, legally allowed to speak for the owner on many topics. But the general situation on that is that you wouldn't be uh, an agent for the owner on large fiduciary issues. And certainly choosing the bidder uh, would be a big financial uh, question and it would not be reasonable for you to just choose the bidder on your own. Uh, it might be that the owner says, I don't know, you choose, and then you can, of course, um, although I would be wary of that from a legal standpoint, but still you could once they said that. Um, but it, essentially you're able to speak for the owner on many, many things, but not on large scale financial issues. It's just not reasonable. You just don't know enough about their financing uh, and their, uh, the, their ability to pay uh, to other people that it's just not reasonable for you to speak for them in those situations. But there are many smaller scale issues where it is reasonable uh, for you to, to uh, stand for the owner and make decisions for them. So in the end, uh, the answer here is gonna be B, reviews the information and advises the owner and helps them make their own decision. Not seeing any specific questions about this uh, question there, Mike. So I guess we can go right yeah. ahead. Cool. Number two, at the monthly payout review for a multifamily adaptive reuse project with a 5% retention and a 10% contingency and no contract extras yet, the plumbing contractor's line item on the contractor's sworn statement, you might see it listed as a, the CSS, um, I think the exam uses CSS sometimes, uh, shows a full contract of 200,000 and a percentage completion of 70%. So the plumbers have said, we're 70% done and their contract is worth a total of 200,000. And it says there's no change orders yet, no contract extras yet. Uh, so it's pretty straightforward, but we have these two uh, odd little additions with the 5% retention and 10% contingency. So at first blush, you look at this and the actual question is, what is the actual amount of money that the plumbing subcontractor will have received once they are paid through this payout? you would say, well, it's going to be 70% of 200,000, which would be A, 140,000. But that's actually not going to be right because we have a little bit of additional information. And that additional information is the 5% retention and 10% contingency. Uh, 
as it turns out, the 10% contingency, while very interesting, is a bit of a red herring here and does not actually impact the line item uh, of the 200,000. Uh, so 10% contingency, the contingency is when, you know, you, you get a bid from a contractor and it says, um, uh, yeah, we, we'll be able to do this project for, um, uh, you know, a million dollars. And yet we all know something is going to go wrong. We don't know what it is, but we know something is going to go wrong. There's going to be some bad weather days or there's going to be a code official who's going to walk through and want something that was unexpected to be done or uh, a tenant is going to suddenly get involved and they want the door in a different location or something is going to happen where there's going to be some extra cost somewhere and you just know it's going to be so if the owner has that bid for a million dollars and they go to the bank and they say hey bank i need a million dollars to build this project but then we all know there's going to be some extra cost. There's going to be a moment where they have to go back to the bank and say, hey, I know you gave me the million dollars, but I actually need more than that. And that's just not a reasonable conversation if you can see it coming. Uh, and so instead of saying to the bank, I need a million dollars, they would say to the bank, I need, uh, let's say, uh, $1.1 million, uh, which would be a 10% contingency just in case anything goes wrong. And then if you don't need it, you just give the money back to the bank or however it works, or maybe you make the building a little bit better. Um, but uh, it's a way of sort of building in when something's going to go wrong and you know something's going to go wrong, you just don't know what it is. Uh, and so that's what you use contingency for. If you're a builder doing, uh, say, houses on a, um, uh, big uh, community development where they're building, a, you know, 150 houses and you're on number 24 and you've now built this a bunch of times, I, the developer is going to be pretty, like, they don't really need to put any contingencies in because you, everybody knows what's going on. They're just doing the same thing over and over again and it's, you know, they've already got it down. So maybe you would add a contingency of a percent or something like that just in case something weird comes up. Um, so, you know, some places you probably don't really need a contingency, but then you can go swing all the way to the other end and maybe you're doing an adaptive reuse of a uh, uh, historic building that was originally built by Louis Sullivan or something. Well, in that case, there are so many things that could come up. You, you start taking the drywall down uh, off of uh, the interior walls and it turns out the walls aren't what you expected or it turns out uh, the structure has gotten rotted out over 120 years uh, and so you need to replace more than was expected so in a situation like that the contingency might be 20 or even 25 percent especially if it's a historically listed building uh, because you can't just replace things uh, all the time sometimes you have to like fix them in place so the concept of, of uh, contingency is really dependent on the typology and the situation. Uh, but it's sort of an overall number typically that gets added to the overall uh, line that is really to sort of be a pre-correction uh, for the ownership to make sure that they've got enough money to cover the project. Uh, and so therefore, it's not really impacting our uh, question here. So the contingency question is really a red herring off to the side. The one that does matter is our 5% uh, um, retention. So the retention is 
when uh, you're going along and every month you're doing a payout. Payouts don't have to be monthly. They could be weekly, they could be every two weeks, they could be at certain milestones, but monthly is pretty common and it's a it's sort of a logical one. If you're doing it every week, it's just a lot of paperwork and you're spending all your time kind of going through all the paper. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to everybody. Uh, monthly, you know, it reduces the amount of paperwork, but still you're not letting the project get out of hand. Uh, and it's a nice way of sort of keeping up with the project. It keeps everybody kind of honest and, and on track. Uh, so monthly is pretty typical. And unless you see something that says uh, differently, that would be the one that I would assume uh, in any one of these kinds of questions. Uh, so a 5% retention in this case would mean uh, that when any of the subcontractors are being paid out, they're being paid out, but then a 5% of what they're being paid is being pulled back and held in escrow in a separate account. Uh, and the whole point of the retention is it's great while everybody's working along uh, that you kind of, you're paying them and they're doing the work and you're paying them as they're going. But when you get to the very, very end and you know there's a problem that will take uh, you know, three hours for the plumber to fix uh, that just wasn't ever quite right, the, uh, uh, there's a kink in the line or something, there's some little minor issue uh, at the very end of the project, uh, if you're saying to that plumber, hey, we need you to come out and get this thing fixed, but they have long since moved on to other projects, uh, it's very hard to to get them, not because they're evil people or anything like that, but just because they're now in the middle of other things. Um, uh, it's very hard to get them to come back out to the project and fix that one little thing. But if you're holding 5% of a $200,000 contract in escrow until everything is done, well, in order to get that 5%, which is actually you know a pretty big chunk of money, uh, in this case, it would be $10,000. Uh, and all you have to do is go fix the kink in the line for that one sink. Uh, you're going to go do that and get it done pretty fast. And again, it's not because people are evil. It's just that you're trying to you know, deal with the realities of the, the life of contractors and how these things work. Uh, and it's a way of just kind of keeping everything actually uh, so that people will come back and finish the work at the end, uh, get their final payments, and everything's done. Uh, so you hold back and it goes into uh, a special escrow account. So 5% uh, is taken off. We have the 140,000, as we said, would be 70% of the 200,000. We subtract 5% from that, and that's going to give us uh, subtracting 7,000, which would be the 133,000. Uh, and that's how much money that they would have been paid. Now, there is a subtle, if you're really parsing the question very, very carefully, you could actually say that, no, in fact, actually, they're being paid the 140. It's just that 5% of it has gone into this special account because it does actually leave the owner's account. So it, that's why it goes into the escrow. Uh, but most people would talk about it as they get 95% of their money and 5% weights on the side. Uh, and then uh, uh, they eventually will get that 5% uh, at the end of the project. Most projects, uh, most typical scale projects, uh, you will pay out the retention at the end of the project. Um, in some larger projects, 
uh, and sometimes even in some smaller projects where the contractors just don't have as much wherewithal and financial uh, um, underpinning, um, you might have multiple points. So it doesn't really make sense to hold on to say the contractor's uh, 5% or 10% or whatever the retention is um, uh, who did the foundation and it's a three year long project and you're holding on to say 5% of their thing for you know years after they did the work. Like at some point it's just not reasonable uh, and so you might have multiple points along the way where certain uh, uh, trades get their retention paid out uh, along the way. But the uh, general idea, generally you'll hear it as at the end of the project, it will get paid out. It's a very useful uh, way of kind of approaching projects. And it is also one of those things that is totally confusing when you look at the CSSs, the uh, sworn statements, uh, because there's all of these numbers, but then the numbers don't seem to add up because they're subtracting out uh, that separate number and you can find the retention off to the side. Not all projects will use uh, retention, but certainly quite a few will, uh, and it's a very common thing to find uh, on the exam itself. Hey, Mike, question for you. A number of people are asking um, about the nature of how you come up with the uh, the 5% retention, or in your example, uh, the, the retention amount and the contingency amount. So in other words, is it always yeah. 5%? Is it always 10%? How, do you, how does that get yeah, set? You know, the, is, the retention is, could change uh, anywhere. Um, I'm sure there's quite a bunch of, quite a few numbers, but I've seen 2%, I've seen 5%, I've seen 10%. I'm sure there's other numbers that people use. Um, the, the, the issue is really, like uh, if you're holding say 10% of a uh, you know four million dollar line item for uh, I don't know a curtain wall or something like that some very expensive uh, element that's a lot of money uh, and you know at some point you've gone beyond the need uh, that you're trying to set up here which is just to make sure that they finish the project um, and so you know bigger numbers aren't necessarily better it can actually kind of put people off and you might lose a subcontractor or two who just doesn't want to do that. Um, so you're, us you're usually looking for a number that creates a reasonable, reasonably large amount of money that is the kind of thing that would make somebody want to come back and finish something off, but not so much that you're, you're causing them uh, financial stress. Uh, so 5% is a very common number. 10% is a relatively common number for certain size uh, projects. Uh, like I said, I've seen 2% on some bigger projects, um, and I'm sure there's a bunch of other ones. There's no, uh, I, at least I, I don't know that there's any, I don't think there's any formula. I think it's just right. sort of an idea, and you kind of use that to go. On contingencies, um, so I, I was trying to sort of allude to the fact that it really, there's a couple of issues there. One is, is this a project that everybody really knows how it's going to go? Um, you know, something weird can happen on any project. Uh, you know, even on the example I was giving of you're building a housing development, you're building the same house over and over again. You know, every once in a while, you'll run into a underground stream or something like that, right? You know, so things can go wrong on any project, but you're just less likely to be worried about it on something like that, where maybe on the first few you had a contingency, but then at some point you sort of narrowed it down and you're kind of, I mean, yeah, contingency. You you've narrowed it down and you're you're sort of feeling pretty good that you can go with a, either no contingency or very low contingency. But yeah. then there's the whole other range where you get very, very complicated and there's just no way to know. And so it doesn't make sense for uh, somebody who just doesn't know how much things are gonna end up really costing 
to go to a bank and ask for an amount of money that they know is nowhere near the actual amount of money. Uh, and so they have to add that contingency just to make sure they cover the project. Um, most projects with contingencies will be in the 5% to 10% range. It would have to be a pretty impressive historic uh, type building before you get up to like 25% or something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. That would be a big, big, big add-on. But like I said, if you're doing a Louis Sullivan building or a Frank Lloyd Wright building, I'm sure you'd want to have at least that big. Yeah. Mike, one, one, one question that people are asking is, could you just show your math real quick um, uh, on how you got to the answer here? Because I think a couple of people are confused about the math that you did. Um, okay, so uh, if you take 0 0.05 and multiply that times 140, that should equal 7,000. I hope I'm right on that. Somebody might want to check that. I'll check it for um, you. Go ahead. Uh, so essentially you're saying 5% uh, of the amount of money that we're paying them out. We got the 140 because that is the 70% of the $200,000 uh, line item, uh, the trade line item on the, on the spreadsheet. So they're going to make eventually $200,000 on the project. Uh, they've built 70% of it so far, so they are owed a total of 70% of 200. It may have, some of it may have come in a previous uh, payout, but up to that point, they're owed 70% of the 200,000. That would be 140,000, but then we're pulling 5% retention away from that and putting it into special escrow. So we're taking that $7,000 off and subtracting it from uh, the 140, and that gives us the 133. Got it. Thank you, Mike. Feel free to go right ahead. Okay. All right. Number three, the shop drawings change the bolting sequence for the wide flange connections from beam to column. The architect should, A, review the information for its compliance with the design intent of the project, B, update the contract documents to include these changes, C, develop with the GC a change order for the new information to confirm its continuity with the construction contract. D, reject any change to the contract documents that does not come with a change order. So uh, the kind of easy answer here and the correct answer would be A, uh, which is review the information uh, for its compliance with the design intent of the project. This is one of those weird things, this is uh, set terms that you'll start hearing. Um, some of you probably have uh, kind of heard this, this talked about this way before, but a few of you probably have not, um, that there's terms for like the means and methods is for the contractor. That's for them. Uh, the contractor is the one who's going to be building and scheduling and coming up with the costs for the actual project. What the architect is doing is coming up with a design intent uh, a clarity of an idea that then can be built by the contractors. And so your role is really with the design intent. Uh, and kind of weirdly, that design intent also includes code compliance and a bunch of other things that are sort of ideas and how they're going to get put together. Uh, but then the actual physicality of it is really in the contractor's court. Um, and in that process, you do a bunch of drawings, 
uh, we tend to, once they're uh, going to be used for construction, we tend to refer to them as contract documents, the CDs. Um, some people will say construction documents. That's actually slightly different. Um, the contract documents are called contract documents because they are literally the contract between the owner and the general contractor. Now, there's also a written contract as well, but in that written contract, your drawings with you, the date of the drawings that you have just submitted to them is literally listed in their contract, which of course it is, otherwise it wouldn't make any sense. What would the contract be about if it didn't reference your, your drawings? So your drawings are telling them what they're building. So you have a design clarity, a design intent, uh, and they are then going to make that manifest. They're going to make that real. Uh, and in that process, you have not probably drawn every conceivable detail that could ever be drawn. Uh, you know, you draw some example details, you have some overall concepts about how things are being uh, put together, and then they're going to submit to you back shop drawings, uh, maybe submittals, uh, things like that where they're saying, all right, we've now turned to our suppliers or our uh, subcontractor, uh, and uh, we said, here's the, the contract documents that we were given. Now you give us back what you're actually going to do, and that's what the shop drawings are. So you've shown a bunch of uh, pretty accurate, but a little uh, abstracted, uh, say in this case, uh, steel, uh, layouts and steel uh, uh, bolting sequences and things like that. Uh, and then the actual team that is going to be doing the erection or the supplying of the steel uh, will go through it themselves. And they're going to go through and figure out every specific little dimension uh, because they need that in order to make the steel pieces, to cut the pieces at length and put the holes in at the appropriate spots. So from your standpoint, probably if the bolts are aligned in a 3-4 pattern or a 4-3 pattern, probably doesn't really matter that much. You might talk to the uh, uh, structural engineer and the structural engineer will say, look, as long as they got seven bolts, I don't care. Uh, or maybe the structural engineer does have something to say, but generally something like this is sort of what the shop drawings are for. And your job is just to look and see, did they do anything that is actually going to meaningfully change uh, the design intent of the project. And if they did, then you're going to say, hold it, don't, you know, I'm rejecting these uh, shop drawings because they don't comply with the design intent. Um, so instead of it being something as simple as like uh, some uh, pattern of bolts, uh, like what if it was they changed it from, say, uh, the beams at every 10 feet on center uh, to every 15 feet on center? Well, that would be a pretty big change and would start to impact, it would have a ripple set of impacts into uh, if it's going every 15 feet, probably the beams are deeper because they're taking more load. Would the deeper beams block the ductwork? Would we have other problems with ceiling height? Would, are any of these things visible? Like, are, is there a rhythm of 10 feet that is important to the design uh, of the, the, the expressed design in, inside the building? Uh, does it start to change other things? So certain kinds of shop drawings, if they're making those changes, yeah, that would, if you actually are going to agree to it, that would actually mean you should really go back and revisit and uh, maybe change the contract documents.
But in general, that's not really the point. Shop drawings are just the next level of clarification. And your role is just to take a look. Does it seem to make sense? And yes, it makes sense with the design intent or uh, no, I'm rejecting this because it is somehow damaging uh, the, the design intent and it's not going to uh, be the, the building that was uh, envisioned uh, previously because of what's shown in the shop drawings. It can get a little complicated. Um, you'll actually see many firms have these crazy stamps uh, with these paragraph long, uh, I approve this, but just to be clear, I approved it while I was you know, taking a shower and looking through the door 10 feet away and I barely was able to see it. And uh, so don't hold me accountable for anything. When it really gets down to it, uh, if you say you approve, most courts will say, well, you approved. Um, but there is an understanding that you're not really expected to like go through and, and redraw everything yourself just to confirm every, like there's a certain limited idea of what your review is for. Your review is just to see, does this seem to make sense with the design intent that we had produced in the contract documents? And if it does, and it doesn't seem to be harming anything, then you say, go for it. If it doesn't, then you say, uh, you know, wait, stop, you need to, to revisit this because of these reasons. So shop drawings, somebody else produces them, but you will have to go through them to check for this kind of issue. Oh, shop drawings. <laughs> yeah, everybody hates shop drawings. Uh, and the great news is uh, you as a bunch of uh, plucky young architects, you're going to get stuck with all the shop drawings because none of the older architects want to deal with it. Um, uh, but it's actually a great way to really get to know the, the relationship between uh, a design idea and the actual material. So yep. use it as an opportunity and really dive deep into those uh, shop drawings uh, because you'll learn quite a bit. The biggest disadvantage of looking at shop drawings is they're generally done by folks uh, who are not as interested in making clear drawings as you generally are. Um, and so they tend to be fairly hard drawings to read. Um, but that's why it's good to sort of dive right into them and really take them on head, head first. Yeah, I will say, in, at least uh, in my career um, as an architect, when, you know, those cool signature elements, you know, that you end up designing, um, they're, you know, when you get the shop drawings for those, like, that's one of the coolest days is to see, like, okay, how are they really going to build this thing? Because, um, yeah. of course, we always think we have an idea or, or we, always, we always have an idea, but you never know for sure. So yeah, that's flying the real thing, that's cool. with the, uh, the, you know, angled beam and you're like, wow, that thing's going to have all these weld points all over it. You're going to see all these, well, those, you know, like suddenly it's a different animal once you start to totally. see the shop drawings. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Okay. Number four, at the end of the project, the owner asked for the as-built build, as-built drawings, which are sometimes referred to as uh, constructed record drawings. The architect should provide the as-built drawings as soon as feasible in order to get the project to final completion, be inform the commissioning agent that the owner is ready for the as-built drawings as they are part of the commissioning process, C, check the contract to see if they are listed under supplemental services, uh, D, tell the GC to produce the plans. So as-builts are kind of interesting. Um, they are not necessarily, uh, in fact, not generally a part of the architect's um, uh, contract. 
However, they are built into the contract under supplemental services. And so the correct answer here is going to be C. Uh, and that's where you would go back and look at the contract. And there's a whole bunch of things there that might be, say, marketing drawings or uh, uh, FF&E, uh, furnitures, fixtures, and equipment uh, uh, process buying and laying out and a uh, whole series of, of things that are not necessarily part of the base contract, but are common enough that you they have put them directly into the contract. And then for them to be part of the contract, there has to be a little check mark next to that, uh, that line item there. And so if you have promised to do the as-built drawings, then there would be a little check mark there and it would be in the contract then. Uh, if there's no check mark there, then you have not promised to do the as-built drawings and there's no real reason for you to do them um, because you actually don't necessarily have a lot of information uh, in order to be really uh, sure about how to do them. Uh, sometimes the GCs will do as-built drawings. Often what you'll see is the GCs will take your drawing set and then just mark up anything that changed from it. And so it's not a real drawing set, but at least it's the information all in one place. Uh, and in many projects, there just is no as-built set. Um, and you just hope that things are reasonably close uh, to what the drawing, the record drawings are uh, down the road when they need to fix a pipe or something like that. Um, so the reason that I ask this question is you'll find that there's gonna be a, uh, a number of questions on the exam where they're gonna give you perfectly reasonable answers to, to things. But what you're really being asked is, do you understand what's part of a contract and what's not? Uh, so you could imagine there might be a question uh, that says, um, you know, uh, can I do, the, you know, X on a job site? And the answer is gonna be, well, it depends what your contract is. Um, and so they're just trying to get you to sort of always see that every contract can be a little different and that you need to sort of look around to see what is actually what you have actually agreed to do uh, and that's why that contract that at this point was done probably months possibly years ago would actually be driving the answer to this question uh, and by the way the commissioning agent doesn't have anything to do with as-built drawings they would uh, ask you for some but they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't produce them I don't think I, let me see here real quick. I don't think there's any specific questions in here on the community that um, are related to the question four. So go right ahead, Mike. Okay. Uh, number five, a misordered pantry cabinet and three boxes worth of vinyl tile have not been installed and are each on an eight week back order. And the final paint touch-ups are in progress. Which of the following is true? Uh, the contractor must update the punch list the architect is able to submit for substantial completion. The architect is able to submit for final completion. The contractor must wait until the cabinets and floors are installed to submit for substantial completion. So a couple of things here. One is uh, on A, the contractor must update the punch list. There's two issues there. One is uh, the contractors are, are the punch list. I hope everybody knows what the punch list is. It's that getting towards the end of a project and it's the list that gets made of all the mistakes or little touch-ups or things that are missing or whatever. So you need to make a big long list uh, in order to, 
to make sure that uh, all those things get actually um, finished. Uh, the punch list technically is started by the contractor and then is taken over by the architect. Um, but usually both the architect and the contractor are working on the punch list uh, kind of at the same time. And it's sort of a living document. It, it uh, you know, as you're going along, you find more things and some things get fixed and other things don't yet. And so the, the list is sort of constantly sort of uh, things are being crossed off and new things are being added until hopefully you get everything pretty much done and then the project is over. Um, so uh, the fact that the contractor must update the punch list just feels awkward and not really accurate, but also the word must, this is one of those things, you wanna be really careful about words like never and must and, and all of that because uh, this just doesn't really fit to the idea of a punch list. Um, and then the other one that we know is not the case, so I'm gonna X out A, uh, is C. Um, the architect is able to submit for final completion. Well, you can't submit for final completion because you're not finally completed. There's still pantry cabinets and paint touch-ups and some vinyl tiles still to go. So it comes down to the idea that it's either B or D and both of them are about substantial completion. So then what is substantial completion comes, uh, comes to mind. Uh, final completion is literally when everything is final and the final amounts of money all get paid out and and everybody walks away except for maybe commissioning agents and some other people who are gonna do some occupancy uh, uh, reviews afterwards. But uh, so final completion, you gotta be done with everything. Substantial completion, that's this weird date uh, that has very large contractual meaning. Um, uh, so we are essentially pretty much done is substantially complete. Uh, and what does it mean to be essentially pretty much done? Well, it means that somebody could move in and start using the space. So if it's an office building, uh, office space, the people who are gonna be working there, they could start moving the desks in and start working out of the space. Uh, if it's an apartment, it's essentially workable that people could live there, move their, move their furniture in and start, uh, start living in the space. So in order for that to be reasonable, well then all of the sort of main parts of whatever the job of that space is, a living space or a working space or whatever, uh, have to be workable, have to be finished enough that they, that they work. But the other aspect is it has to be able to meet enough of the code that it's considered a uh, reasonably safe place from a life safety standpoint. So uh, for example, if the question was, uh, that on the public stair, the railing wasn't in yet. Um, so yeah, you can go up and down the stairs, but it wouldn't be a safe thing to do because you would be without the code required railing. Uh, so in that case, you would definitely not be ready uh, for substantial completion. It could be, uh, you look at this and you say, well, misordered pantry cabinet uh, and three boxes of vinyl tile, does that really stop uh, the ability, you know, uh, to open the, the building up, uh, and it probably doesn't. Um, uh, it's probably fine to have the pantry cabinet come in and, and to finish out the flooring at a later point. But what if it was, instead of the pantry cabinet, what if it was the kitchen sink cabinet, uh, and it was an apartment building and you had a kitchen that didn't have a kitchen sink? You'd be hard to make the case that the kitchen works without a kitchen sink. Uh, and so it would not be substantially complete because it wouldn't be at a point where 
somebody could move in and pretty much do everything they needed to be able to do uh, in that space. So the fact that in this case, it's just a pantry cabinet and a fairly small uh, amount of some vinyl tile, uh, it uh, seems like it is viable for it to be uh, called out as substantially complete. And so I would say the answer is B, the architect is able to submit for substantial completion. So the interesting thing about substantial completion is you're essentially claiming, and then in most situations, different typologies and different parts of the country will be slightly different, but in most situations, the architect would say, okay, we're at substantial completion, and then a code official would, would sign it and agree, and everybody would uh, move on. Um, the point of the substantial completion is now that the owners can move in, um, and that can be important for the owner sometimes. Uh, you know, if you have a lot of cost in a rent for somewhere else, then you're really, they really want to get out of that space and get into their new space. Well, that can be quite a meaningful push and they want to get substantial completion as early as possible in order to be able to move into the space. Uh, or there's uh, bridge loans or other problems like that that just make them really want to push to get uh, to get into the space, then you want to make the substantial completion claim as early as reasonably uh, possible. But you also, the downside of doing it as early as reasonably possible is the other thing substantial completion does is it uh, starts the clock on warranties. So uh, if you have a one-year warranty on some aspect of the project, if it starts uh, in uh, September, but then that was really because you pushed it right to the to the earliest possible point you could claim substantial completion, and then the client didn't actually uh, move in until January. Well, all you've really done is taken their one-year warranty and turned it into a you know what seven-month warranty, um, and so it doesn't help anybody uh, in that case. So uh, the, the the idea of when substantial completion gets claimed. It's kind of an unusual one, and it, it's a it's an interesting sort of conversation between uh, architect, contractor, and owner, and uh, also the uh, uh, code officials. Uh, and then at some point, there's sort of a reasonable spot when you can say, "Go ahead and move in." You know, the other thing is if you have, let's say, an office space, and uh, you've reached substantial completion, and the owner starts moving in. Uh, and you still have painters doing touch-ups and other things. Uh, you know, it's pretty clear if the painters get paint on a, one of the desks that just got moved in, that's really the painter's fault. They should be able to not get paint on things. But can you imagine being a painter and all the furniture starts moving in and you're still trying to like, have what a pain that would be. Um, but what happens if there's like a ding in the wall? You know, somebody damaged a, a wall in the corridor or something. Was it damaged by one of the contractors or was it damaged by somebody moving a desk in or a chair in? It's really hard to know. And the you know painters and the carpenters don't want to have to spend the time fixing the things that the owners uh, are really should be responsible for. But the owner also doesn't want to get into an argument about, well, it's really your fault. We, you know, we didn't damage anything. It must be from the contractors. So in general, you really don't want to have the contractors and the people moving in together in the same space at the same time. It's just that sometimes you have to do that. And so the substantial completion really is about kind of dealing with those moments uh, when you really have to uh, get people moved in 
um, you can imagine uh, schools opening up and it, you just can't delay the opening of school or something. Uh, so you're gonna bring the kids in even if it's not done fully with everything. But you can't bring the kids in to the school if it's not uh, gonna meet code and it's not a safe space. So yeah. in this case, the issues are small enough and they're not uh, dramatic enough to cause uh, uh, the, the, the thought that you can't use the space uh, and they're not dramatic enough to make it an unsafe space. Uh, so yes, you could go ahead and call for substantial completion. Thanks, Mike. Um, for those of you who took our mock exam, um, looks like we goofed up in the mock exam and we asked you to choose three answers. Uh, as you're seeing here, there's really only one answer. Uh, so we goofed up on our side. Uh, Mike's got it correct here. So just wanted to give everyone a heads up and, and thanks to all of you who were like, damn it, there's just one answer. Um, uh, <laughs> clearly, you guys were right. Um, so thank yeah. you and apologies for um, that. Yeah. And, you know, in, in a certain way, there are actually multiple correct answers. The only one that is truly, absolutely not true would be C, uh, the final completion, because it's not finally complete. Um, uh, then D doesn't uh, doesn't really make sense. It really has to be either B or D. And in this case, it would be B. An interesting little side note to this one, um, uh, when I was first thinking about it, I, I changed it to uh, vinyl tile um, uh, because I first said flooring. And I thought, well, that could be like wood flooring. And wood flooring might be, say, three quarters of an inch thick, and even in some situations, it might be on sleepers, at which point it would be like an inch and a half thick. Um, and that would could potentially be a trip hazard for people if you just had no flooring in one spot and then flooring in another spot, but also wouldn't meet ADA and some other issues in certain kinds of contexts. So I chose the vinyl tile because it's so shallow that it wouldn't get in the in the way of any of those kinds of issues. And so, yeah, you could have a section that that wasn't totally finished. Um, so substantial completion is essentially, it's a really interesting uh, moment in a project and it has all of these weird connections to the, to the contracts. Um, and very often architects don't truly understand the impact of their decision in those moments. And so it's really good to get to a feel for uh, when something is really substantially complete. Okay. Um, this one is a little uh, sort of fake question at the end here. Uh, this is not a real question. Um, it wouldn't be written like this. This is one uh, that is just here for me to be able to spout off on one little thing, which I've already sort of mentioned, but I'm going to use it as a chance to do it again. So this little bonus question is, you should never tell a subcontractor on a job site to stop the work they are doing. Uh, and the thing that should jump out at you, like I was just saying, is the word never. Um, and the answer to this question is, in general, absolutely, you do not have a role to tell subcontractors to stop working. Uh, that is the role of the general contractor. It is not your role. If you do start walking around a job site telling people to stop and to start and that kind of thing, you are essentially taking over the responsibility of the schedule. And so it's a terrible idea. Your insurance company will hate you for it. Uh, it's, you want to be really careful. You never really want to tell a subcontractor to stop. However, the word never should make you nervous. Uh, what if it's a design build? What if uh, part of the supplemental 
uh, uh, condition or supplemental uh, um, uh, aspects of the contract. You've uh, taken on the schedule, uh, which sometimes you you can do in your contract. You can check the the mark that says, yeah, we're going to take over the scheduling of the project. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons how you could take over that role. So it is not something that would never happen. It's just something that would be a bad idea uh, in most situations. So the true answer here is that it's false, even though 95% of the time it would be true. So again, this is not meant as a real question for you. This is meant just so that I can have this moment to say, watch out for words like must and never. Um, and also to remember that uh, many of the questions are going to be uh, essentially the answer is, well, it depends on what you did on your contract. Uh, if you sign something on your contract saying uh, that uh, you are going to be involved in penalties, then you're involved in penalties. If you sign something in your contract uh, saying you are going to uh, be uh, part of the scheduling, then you're part of the scheduling. But if you didn't sign something specific to that, then you would not be part of it and you should not be telling them. And the big reason for that, just I, I often tell, use this little example. Imagine you walk onto a job site and the painter is painting uh, the walls uh, sky blue sky. Uh, and you walk on and uh, you say, hey, this is supposed to be butterfly yellow. Like, stop, stop what you're doing. Get rid of this paint. This is, you're, you're using the wrong paint. That might seem like a completely reasonable thing to do because you know that it's supposed to be butterfly yellow, not sky blue sky. Uh, and so you're telling them so that you can, so that they don't keep making the mistake worse. They're like, okay, and they pack up their stuff and they leave because they don't have any of the yellow. And now they're going off to another project. Maybe they come back in two weeks or something. And the GC is like, hey, what the hell did you do? What's what's going on here? Uh, and you say, well, they're using the wrong paint color. And it turns out that maybe the GC and the owner had had a conversation and the owner had said, oh my God, there he goes again with the butterfly yellow. Oh, I can't stand that anymore. Just change it to sky blue sky. You just don't know. And so they have information that you didn't have. And what you just did was push the schedule to two weeks later uh, because the painters left and now they're working on something else and they can't get back for two weeks. So you have taken responsibility for all of the potential uh, problems that being two weeks late on the project are. So it's not, uh, it's not that there aren't reasons to want to stop uh, a subcontractor from working. It's just that there are ways of doing it and you do it through the lines of the contract. So uh, their contract is with the general contractor. So you go to the general contractor and say, hey, what's up with the, why is this uh, sky blue sky and not uh, uh, butterfly yellow? Uh, and then you can have the conversation and then they can tell them to stop if it's actually still appropriate. So Again, this question not really meant as uh, like if you get a, a, an actual question on the exam will be much uh, more detailed than this. Um, this is really just so that I could have that moment to say, uh, watch out about uh, overly specific wording like never and must. All right. I think the key point here, Mike, <clears throat> is that we all need to know where you shop for paint. Uh, and um, where you've heard of sky blue sky color. Yeah, I think I mean, uh, come on, those are those are pretty good paint colors, right? Sky blue sky, butterfly yellow. You'd paint with those, wouldn't you? <laughs> I would. Sounds like a beautiful color. Well, thank you, Mike. Um, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. That was a ton of information. 
Uh, I'm excited that you guys all will be able to walk with that, walk away with that in just an hour. It's really awesome that you put that together for everyone, Mike. Um, as I mentioned, our next ARE Live broadcast is in just about a month on February 25th. We're going to run through an exercise from one of our virtual workshops with Mark Bailey. We'll go through um, one of our lessons uh, from our PPD exam. Uh, it's going to be a great opportunity to see how hands-on and in-depth the virtual workshops are, so don't miss it. Uh, we're posting a link right now in the chat box um, so that you can uh, go to blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register. If you'd like to learn more about all of our ARE exam prep offerings, you can go to blackspectacles.com or you can try out any of our course videos. Uh, again, I just shared a link uh, with that as well. Today's lucky winner of a Black Spectacles t-shirt is Clifford M. Thank you, Clifford, for, um, for your participation on our community. We're gonna reach out to you via email to get your size and shipping information and send it your way. Just a reminder, if you'd like to be eligible to win a t-shirt from us, uh, post a question about our featured topic in the, in the community during ARE Live. And, uh, and know that our ARE community is always buzzing. It's not just something for ARE Live. Um, we, the intention behind our ARE community is two parts. Uh, number one, uh, it's a place where you can go get answers from experts. So if you ever have a question where you're like, what the hell is substantial completion made, uh, mean? You can throw that question into our community and we have a group of experts who uh, regularly answer those questions. Secondly, it's also a great place to go to get, um, let's say some inspiration. And we're looking for, you know, many of us uh, along the journey to get licensed can get discouraged and so forth. Um, there's a lot of great stories of people passing and what the tricks were that they used to pass. So I'd encourage all you guys to take a peek in our area community from time to time um, and see what you find. Uh, for those of you who are ready to start studying for the ARE right now, we have a special coupon code, which is A-R-E-L-I-V-E-JAN21 to get $21 off any of our monthly ARE test prep memberships. Um, and then finally, tomorrow we'll email you a follow-up about today's live broadcast. So please let us know what you think and share any suggestions that you may have. I promise we read every word that you write and use it to tune our next episodes. So thanks for watching.